Everybody hear me okay? Okay, if I have to yell, that's, that's okay too, right? Well, I won't yell. I'll just get excited. Uh, here's how the mind works, okay? Uh, before the service started, the worship team went into my office. We were going to pray. And then uh, uh, I had these, uh, we got these little mints they gave us over at the conference last week. And, and uh, I opened the box. I, you know, usually you open a box and it's got white mints in it, right? Open this box and it got green mints. They look like little little peas about this big. So everybody's popping them, right? So I didn't think of anything of it until I came up the stairs and I told Sean or asked Sean. I said, "Hey, is my tongue green?" And uh, and he says, "Yeah, a little bit." And I said, "Well, okay. See, so now that you know that, what are you going to be looking for tonight? My green tongue, right?" All right. Now, I'm warning you that that's not the what you need to be looking at, okay? Up here, in your Bibles, okay? Uh, the first thing you want to do is, oh, look at that green tongue, uh, okay? There it is. Uh, all right. Now you've seen it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Okay. <laughs> all right. Revelation chapter 7. We're getting back into it. We're going to finish 7 tonight. And... Uh, We are between the uh, seal judgments, the seals that are being broken off the scroll. The six seals have been broken. There are seven seals, and therefore there's one more seal. But that seventh seal that's going to be open is the one that brings in the next judgments, which are the trumpet judgments. Okay. And that's going to be coming in chapter 8. But there is this intermission, as it were, or parentheses, as it, is, as it were, between the sixth seal, which we're going to actually look at at the end of the service, or at the end of the study, I should say, and then the, um, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, uh, which is what we've been looking at here in, in, um, uh, in chapter 7. What we saw at the beginning of chapter 7 is the working of God. The reminder to us that God is still in complete control of all things in the end times. Now, I don't have to emphasize to you more, but I do every week tell you that we are living in the last days. We know that because of the signs that we see, the signs of the times, the things that are happening in the world today, the tremendous attention and focus that is being uh, taken upon the Middle East, especially uh, with the nation of Israel in particular. And so we know then that there is, uh, in that respect, Uh, certainly a a correlation to what we see in the Scriptures, which were written thousands of years ago, and what's happening today. Things are happening, and prophecies are being fulfilled. And this is what tells us about the reliability of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. We can rely on the Word of God. We need to, first and foremost... Rightly divide the Word of God. We need, to, we need to take it and we need to, first of all, believe what it says. But we need to then study it 
and to show ourselves strong in what we're seeing and what we're, we're dealing with. That's why we, we go verse by verse. So after we see the hand of God working through the angels in preparation for these last days, there were 12,000 of each tribe of Israel chosen to become the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that will go out into the earth. We're going to talk a little bit more about them tonight going into the last part of chapter 7. So let's, let's just begin reading in verse 9 because in verse 9 is where we pick up from where we were before. So Revelation 7 verse 9 is where we'll start reading. And we're going to tie it into the first eight verses. After these things I, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now before I move on, I want you to notice that there are people from all nations, an innum- you know, innumerable num- uh, just innumerable multitude. Can't count them, in other words. But they're of all nations, of all tribes, of all peoples, and of all tongues. We would like to think and we would like to believe that the gospel has gone out to every person in the world since the resurrection of Jesus. But if it hasn't, it will in the, tri- in the time of tribulation. Because that's what we're looking at, the time of tribulation. And then in verse 10 it says that these who are standing there of all the nations, tribes, and tongues. It says of them, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now remember that John is seeing all of this. And then the next thing that he sees is all the angels, it says, stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So that's the first thing we want to deal with tonight. What we learn from the first eight verses of this chapter is that uh, even in the worst of times, Remember we took that phrase from A Tale of Two Cities uh, by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And while we look at the world and we see that the world is in the worst of times, for the believer in Jesus Christ, because we know God and because we know Jesus, it's not to say that it's the best of times, but we know that the best of times are coming. But what we learn from the first eight verses of this chapter is that even in the worst of times, the Lord will always be doing something good. The Lord will always be doing something good. Because everything that God does is good. Whether we think about it or not, or whether we think that it is or not, whatever God does is good, because He can only do good. When we saw the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, especially in the chapter 1, where it talks about creation and, and the way that, and the days of creation, that every day that God created something, at the end of it all, He said it was good. Well, that hasn't changed. Because God is still good. 
there's never been a time that God isn't good. Now, there are times when we've criticized him and said, well, God, how come you didn't let this happen to me or you didn't let me have this or you didn't let me have that? And we, we speak of it as if God isn't being good to us. But the very fact that we're breathing means that we're, you know, he's been pretty, pretty merciful and pretty gracious and pretty good. So in all things, God is good. And there's never a time that God isn't good. And that even when he allows troubles and trials in our lives, God is being good because he's using those things to build us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and of his word. As I quoted Layman Strauss last time, I said the world at its best, I'm sorry, the world at its worst will always see God at his best. The world at its worst will always see God at its best, at his best. For example, we learn that there will be souls saved during the tribulation and that the first group that we see, as we did at the uh, beginning of this chapter, will be Jews. Better saved. Just like at the beginning of the church. The very beginning of the church was made up of primarily Jews. Probably 99, 44%, 100% of everybody saved on that day of Pentecost were Jews. Maybe it's even a little higher, 99 and uh, 99, 100% were Jews. Because they were all in Jerusalem, and they were all there for a purpose. They were there, you know, to celebrate the, the Feast of Pentecost, and what happened was the Spirit came down upon the church. But here, as we see in the last days, again, where there is this great revival that takes place, it, it is with the Jews first. What, is, what did Paul say? about, uh, about the, uh, the gospel, that it would go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Jesus said the same thing. The prophets actually would say the same thing. The apostles themselves. So we learn that there will be souls saved during the tribulation, and the first group will be Jews, from the 12 tribes mentioned in verses 4 through 8. I want you to go back to verses 4 through 8, because there are some things that we didn't cover last time, and it's important that we cover them today. So let's go to verse, verse 4, and it says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, of the tribe of Judah. Now I want you to notice there is some need to understand the order that is given, as well as certain uh, tribes that are un- underlined when you'll see them in just a moment. Verse 5, Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. By the way, if you look at the earlier uh, uh, lists of tribes, Reuben is mentioned first, but not here. And there's a reason. And then it says, uh, of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 6, of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. And notice, of the tribe of Manasseh, underlined, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 7, Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, or Levi, and that's underlined, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 8. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, Joseph being underlined, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, you may be wondering why the Lord would list for us the tribes of Israel and tell us that there would be 12,000 sealed from each tribe. Well, in one sense, it is for those who just don't believe that God says what He means and means what He says. 
So he writes this the way he does. And he gives it the way he does to John. Tell him there are 12,000 from each tribe that I've chosen to be my witnesses, my evangelists to the world. You see, there is no way that you can, as some choose to do. We talked a little bit about this last week. Where some people choose to think that there really isn't an Israel anymore. Even the Israel that is in the land today, that's not really biblical Israel. And therefore, they say all the promises that were given now in the Scriptures, or that are given in the Scriptures, are actually for the church. And therefore, there is a... Uh, a, a theology called replacement theology where we replace Israel with the church. And that just is not what the Bible teaches. I mean, it is not what the Bible teaches. We can actually spend about uh, a whole hour speaking on that subject alone. But there's no way that you can make this the church. The passage we just read. There's no way that you can make this the church in a spiritual sense, even spiritualizing it, because we are not part of the 12 tribes of Israel. He mentions 12 tribes, and then he names the 12 tribes. He names them. Anybody know what tribe you're from? Well, you know, if you think that you're part of the 144,000, you've got to know which tribe you're from. But you can't. Because God, God is going to select them, and they're going to know what tribe they're from. And if you really think that he doesn't mean the twelve tribes of Israel, he listened for us. The Lord does not say, you know what we, we, we don't see here? It doesn't say, like the tribe of. He doesn't say that. He says, of the tribe. Of the tribe of. That's, that's pretty clear to me. So God is very specific. He means what He says, and He says what He means, and, and you can go on and on with that thought. But as you read over this list, you will notice that two tribes are left out. If you compare with the other lists in the Old Testament, two tribes are left out, and one is added. The two tribes that are left out are Dan and Ephraim. Dan and Ephraim, or Ephraim. And there is much speculation about why this list is written in this manner. First of all, you'll notice that the tribe of Judah is mentioned first. I mentioned that usually Reuben is mentioned first because of, of the fact that, you know, firstborn is, is usually done, uh, takes the first position. But here Judah is mentioned first. There's reason for that. First of all, Judah means praise. Remember that. Judah means praise. But Judah, more than, more, more than anything, Judah is the tribe from which the Lord Jesus would come. So that's significant in the change of the, of the, of the order. Benjamin, the youngest, is mentioned last. But then you notice also that Joseph is mentioned. Originally, Joseph was represented by two tribes. Joseph was represented by the tribes of Ephraim or Ephraim or and Manasseh. Those two are brothers. And they were representative, you see, of the tribe of Joseph. But since the tribe of Manasseh is named, 
then by elimination, the tribe of Joseph replaces and represents Ephraim or Ephraim. As for Dan and Ephraim being slighted from this list, I want you to consider that these two tribes, and this is a, a probable reason for them not being mentioned in this particular uh, list of tribes. But consider, if you will, that these two tribes were associated with idolatry, the tribe of Dan being the first associated with idolatry. If you read Judges 18, verse 30, it says, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. As a tribe, as a whole tribe, when they were the ones that went the furthest away from all the rest of the tribes, then they began to do their own thing when it came to their own religious practices and they began to carve images, and then they began to worship those images. By the way, here's another commercial for Israel. We're going to Israel in March, and we want you to go. We go to that place that has been excavated, where Dan actually built an altar for the worship of their carved images. It's a fascinating place to go see. So, you need to go see it. All of you have to sign up. Okay. (laughs) But they weren't the only ones. Another tribe is mentioned in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So they are also pointed out as idol worshippers. So there's there's another probable reason why they're not mentioned here. Now, we really cannot say why the tribe of Levi is included, Levi. Now, you all know that the Levites were the priests. And when, the, when the, uh, the apportionment of the land went out, the Levites didn't get any land. Was God being unfair to them? No. They were the priestly tribe, and they went to every tribe. And they were to be blessed by every tribe for their spiritual service to them before the Lord. So they were being blessed by the children of Israel. And by the twelve tribes. But now here, and, and, I, can, and I can tell you this, one of the, the, one of the most important tribes that uh, Israel is looking for today, I mean, honestly looking for people that have the DNA of the tribe of Levi or Levi, is because they want to have their priests ready for the building of the sec- or the last temple. Or, or well, I should say the, the third temple, as it were. For the, the, the new temple in the Temple Mount. So they have to have the, that tribe. They're, they are, I mean, actively looking for priests. Now, in the Hebrew, they, the, 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 the family line that's connected to that are, are the, the the Kohans, Cohen, any, any sounding name like that, more than likely are priests. 
So they're getting all the Kohans together and the Kohans and the Khans and, and all because they all sound about the same, you know, so they're, they're looking for them. But we really can't say why the tribe is, is included. And in fact, it had no inheritance, as we said, with the other tribes. Nor can we, we say why Joseph is included and not Ephraim, other than uh, what we just mentioned about, you know, the idolatry. Because they will be mentioned again, that is, Dan and Ephraim, will be mentioned again in Ezekiel chapter 48. I won't take you there, but write it down and look it up yourself. But in Ezekiel 48, they're going to be mentioned again for the apportionment of the land in the millennial kingdom. Dan and Ephraim. So it seems a little confusing, but remember this. Remember that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace, He's a God of mercy, and He's a God of forgiveness. All in all, we must allow the Lord to know secret things, to know things that we can't understand fully and completely. We can speculate a little bit, but we can't understand it fully. Because there's a little twist and turn here and there about this little issue. But we're not to allow our ignorance of them, of these secret things, to obstruct us or to hinder us from keeping and doing what we do know. We shouldn't let anything get in the way of that. Because of the things that we do know. By the way, Deuteronomy 29, remember this, because uh, this sometimes is the best answer to the questions that we may not ever have answered in this life. But in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So the secret things belong to the Lord. The things we can't fully understand, or the, the things that we can't fully communicate completely yet, it's okay. God knows, and that's good enough for me. Don't you think? I mean, if God knows things that we don't understand, do we have to understand everything? I mean, this is the reason why so many kids grow up saying, Why? 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 Because we're inquisitive. And our parents have sometimes reasons not to do things or to do things a certain way. Why? 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 I, I think the question why comes from our very fallen nature. We just need to know why. The Lord says, I'll tell you why someday. But not now. I have my reasons. So, with that in mind, we have the tribe set up, or at least what we're going to see happen. And there is a, a passage that you know, we, we're needing to, to look at, which is... Again, going back to verse 9 and uh, through verse 12. Let me get my focus here. 9 to verse 12. And, and, and it has to do with defying Satan's secular dominion. It has to do with defying Satan's secular dominion. Because what we find during the time of the tribulation, of course, is that the rapture of the church is taking place, the church is out of the way. All hell is breaking loose on the earth. There's an antichrist, it's called the beast in the book of Revelation. And he has made a peace agreement with Israel, as we talked about from chapter 6. Uh, the first seal that was broken was that deception of, uh, of a false peace. And uh, then three and a half years into 
this particular peace treaty, uh, the beast or the Antichrist breaks the treaty, goes into the temple that is going to be built, and he defiles the temple by sitting on the throne, the throne which only be, belongs to, to the Lord. So what we're going to see in the passage here in chapter 7 has to do with defying Satan's secular dominion. So lastly, let me add to those sealed. Let me add that those who are sealed, the 144,000, are going to go unscathed through the Great Tribulation. They're going to go unscathed through the tribulation. Their, 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 their whole purpose is to serve God, to take the gospel to all the world. They're going to go unscathed. We know this because the seal, they are sealed clearly. All 12 tribes are sealed. All 12,000 of each tribe are sealed. All 144,000 are sealed with a mark of divine possession a mark of divine protection, and a mark of divine preservation. Possession, protection, and preservation. That's what the seals were. The seals on the scroll that only Jesus could open, what did that represent? Possession. Who did it belong to? It belonged to Jesus. He was the only one that could open those seals. The seals represent possession. But they also represented protection by the authority who holds the, the scroll. And along with that is preservation. Isn't it great to know that when God saves us, He keeps us? I mean, that's why we are called sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because He not only possesses us now. See, we're not our own, the Bible says. He possesses us, He protects us, and He preserves us. So, they will be sealed immediately upon being born again. And they are sealed until the day of their, re of their resurrection and translation into heaven. They will be a perpetual thorn in the side of the beast and a constant reminder to the devil. And this is why it's defying, you see. That's why I said it's defying Satan's secular dominion. The 144,000 are a reminder to the devil that while millions may bow to his will, the Lord still has him on a leash. The Lord still has the Antichrist on a leash, and the Lord still has the devil on a leash. And in effect, he is saying to him, thus far and no farther. We sometimes wonder why God, you know, why do you let him go out on the leash at all? But God has his reasons. Certainly for us, it is keeping us sharp. It is keeping us focused. It is keeping us awake. It is keeping us vigilant. It is keeping us prayerful. But the 144,000 are sealed by God and for God as a reminder to Satan that every knee does not bow to him. Go back and, and read Isaiah 14 and Lucifer and, and the, the statements that he makes about being, you know, saying, I am, I am going to be like the Most High. I am going to sit on that throne. I, 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 five eyes there. And people are not going to bow down to him. 
Many will. But these 144,000 are a reminder to Satan and to the beast that not all will. Because God is sovereign. And because God is in control. Let's go back to that, sec- that section, verse 9 again. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's worship taking place, you see. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures all, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So the, 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 uh, the, the multitude of people were not the only ones worshipping God. The angels then stood. And the elders and the four living creatures. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There is this other company to be considered. There is a great multitude of Gentiles who will be saved during the tribulation period and who will seal their testimony with their very own blood. So whereas there was a defying of Satan's secular dominion with these before the throne of God, we find that they are denying Satan's spiritual dominion. See, Satan wants to have two dominions. He wants to have the dominion of the secular and of the spiritual. And both times, God confounds that. In fact, God is going to stop it. He's going to bring it to an end. Notice where they're standing, first of all. By the way, these are the tribulation saints. These are the saints that came to the Lord during the time of the tribulation. This is not the church. There is a distinction. We've talked about the distinction. We'll see this distinction more in the next few weeks. But, but here... Again, this is not the church. Nonetheless, they're in heaven. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, this next point is quite significant. So don't miss this. These are neither Israel. It is not Israel. And it is not the church. The churches, as has been pointed out in chapters 4 and 5, are in heaven sitting around the throne. The number of this throng is beyond all counting. The one that we have uh, before the throne now is beyond all counting as far as man is concerned because the exact number is only known to God. God knows exactly how many people are going to be standing before Him out of the tribulation. He knows that number exactly. Just like the Bible says He knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head. Some more than others. I won't look. The exact number is known to God. Look at 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Do you see the seal? What does it mean? Possession, protection, preservation. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So he knows who's, who, are, who are his. There's no doubt 
about that both in the rapture of the church and in the tribulation saints and in the 12,000 of each tribe that make up the 144,000. They are the, the ones before the throne now are the Gentile converts, one to the Messiah as a result of Israel's restoration. I, I can also add that there are some uh, Jewish people there too who are going to be saved because of the Jewish uh, uh, evangelists. But primarily they are the Gentile converts. That, that distinction is being made for us because of, 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 uh, of chapter 7. But the, uh, the converts are one to Messiah as a result of Israel's res- restoration. Israel is being restored. Remember that these seven years are for the sake of Israel's restoration. And it tells us in the prophet Isaiah about these Gentiles. Look, look at Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you. Now, do you notice that this is in a primarily Jewish book, Isaiah, yet it says, uh, uh, the darkness shall cover the earth. You see that? So it isn't just dealing with Israel, even though it is, but it's not just dealing with Israel. It says, and deep darkness the people, speaking of the whole earth, but the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. And notice verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. So, it is the Jewish witness. It is the Jewish light. That was their whole purpose. Why God raised the Jewish people. Why God raised the Hebrew nation up. So that they would be the ones who would take the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And point to Jesus when He came. But what does it tell us in the, in the gospel of John? He came unto His own... And his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. But he came to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So even those saved on on the day, listen, even those saved on the day that Jonah preached in Nineveh, remember there was a million, million people in Nineveh, when, when Jonah reluctantly went into that city, and he just said, Repent! That's all he said! And he stunk because he had just been inside of this fish. And he probably smelled like tartar sauce or something. But anyway, so there, so there he is, and he says, Repent! And what happened? The people repented, and he got mad! Because he wished that God had just destroyed him. But nonetheless, they got saved. A million of them. So, think about this. Even those saved on the day of Jonah, uh, the day that Jonah preached in Nineveh, and those saved also on the day of Pentecost. You remember how many were saved on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. So a million and 3,000. Even those saved on those two events, as far as numbers are concerned, cannot compare to this great victory that is to come in the tribulation period. There are going to be millions upon millions of people saved because of these 144,000. An innumerable multitude is what we're told. That's a lot of people. 
Now that doesn't mean that, that there's not going to be a lot of people that are going the other direction. How many people are on the earth today? Seven billion people? That's a lot of millions. That's mucho millions. You can tell I don't know how many millions. That is, that's a lot of millions. But there, there, there are tons of millions. So, but still there's going to be millions that do come to the Lord. And they're going to give their life for their faith. And then notice again it's something else that it tells us here. Not a single tribe or tongue will be missing. Not a single tribe or tongue will be missing. It says all tribes, all nations, all peoples will be represented. They will stand before the Lord. They are going to be clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, we're told in our text. The white robes, a symbol of purity. The palm branches, symbols of protection and deliverance. Also a symbol of victory. A symbol of victory. What were they laying down before the donkey that Jesus rode into his, into Jerusalem? Palm branches. And what were they saying? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Victory, salvation. They're holding palm branches. These, these, were, these were used as, as symbols of victory. I know that we talk about the laurel wreath that goes on the head of, of the, the Olympians, you know. But they also gave palm branches as, as a sign of victory too. In, the, in, in that uh, Middle Eastern culture. And then we see and hear their praise in verse 10. Here's the praise. Listen to what it says. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The tribulation saints will be praising God for His grace. The tribulation saints will be praising God. The tribulation saints will be praising God for His grace. And they're going to die for what they, what they believed in, or what they will believe in. They're going to die for it. They're going to give their lives. Why, why am I emphasizing that? Because the church today doesn't worship like it's supposed to worship. And even when the church is given the opportunity to worship, we don't worship. We don't give God His full worth. With everything that is within us, let us praise the Lord. With everything that is within us, let us give honor and glory to our God for the salvation that He has brought to us, for the grace that He has shown to us, for the mercies that He has poured out to us. Instead, we spend more time judging other people than worshiping God. I'm not spanking you. All you all are in church tonight. But do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the problem here? 
every one of them, it seems, will pay the price of martyrdom for their faith, and yet they thank God for their salvation. We sometimes punish the Lord. Oh, Lord, you didn't give me something, so I am worshiping you tonight. I'm going to stay home and I'm going to watch something on TV like Storage Wars or something. (laughs) What kind of foolishness is that? Pawn stars, you know. Listen carefully. They leave life. They leave life through the terrifying gates of the most horrible deaths that the enemy can devise. Can I tell you that those things are happening today? Not so much in a greater sense like it will in the time of the tribulation, but we're already seeing it. Do you remember that journalist a few years ago, Daniel Pearl? who was beheaded and the video was sent out to all the world he was Jewish by the way beheaded by Islamists the British soldier in his own country in London, England is assaulted and beaten and, 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 and beheaded as well And, and those and, and the scriptures, as we will see, are telling us that that's going to happen again. We used to think about forty years ago. We used to think, you know, when we would read the things about the beheadings in the scriptures, in the Book of Revelation, we used to think, oh, it must be in Europe, you know, because there's going to be this European common market, and then you know the Antichrist is going to come from Europe. And therefore, you know, they're going to they're going to bring out the guillotines from France, and everybody's just going to get a, be put on the guillotine, right? And then when they were doing the movies about about the rapture and the end times, and you know, uh, in the Thief in the Night and all of that stuff, and other movies that they made, you know, they, they always brought out a, guilla, a guillotine, you know, so that because it was, uh, you know, that's, that's the way they, they, you know, the the sensible, <laughs> humane people cut people's heads off, you know. That's not the way it's happening, is it? The sword of Allah. Wake up. It's happening today. But for these people that are going to become believers in Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation, they're going to go through these kinds of deaths, but it is all over now. Where they are, standing before the throne, and... They are saved. They're saved and they're safe. And the ones stimulated, listen, the ones stimulated by this are the angels and the elders and the four living creatures who will fall on their faces before the the throne and they will worship God. In other words, the, the ones that are already in heaven, the church... And all who are seated before the throne, the twelve, or I should say the twenty-four elders, the angels even themselves, it says, they stood up, which means, the implication is, they were all seated before the throne, 
as these things are happening, but now because of these saints that are, that are worshiping and praising God, even though that they were, they, their lives were taken for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, now they fall before the Lord and they, and they worship the Lord. It is a great thing. Listen carefully. It is a great thing when something we say or something that we do stimulates another person to worship God. It is a great thing when something we say or do stimulates another person to worship the Lord. I, you know, I spoke of this this past weekend. I, I quoted from Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What is the purpose of coming to the house of the Lord but to worship God? And how do we get people to come to worship God? Because we come excited to worship the Lord. We come ready to worship the Lord. We come full of of this joy and, and this desire just to pour our hearts out to God. But we need to examine ourselves about that. Because it isn't just about ourselves. It's about everybody else that God is saying, you need to tell about me. I mentioned Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 this weekend. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Are we considering others? Are we considering somebody that we know hasn't been here in a while? And we said, you know, hey, brother, sister, come on, man. We need to get back to worshiping the Lord. He's coming at any moment. We should be ready. We should be encouraged. We should get excited about Jesus. I mean, we should be excited about Jesus. I mean, we should be excited about everything that He has done for us already. It isn't a past thing that we have hung up on our wall, as if it already happened, like some trophy. It's a daily, constant belief and trust and, 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 and confidence in, in the Lord being with us and in us all the time. Do we think about the Lord every second? Well, that's a little hard for us because, you know, we're human and we make, you know, we make certain judgments sometimes that take our eyes off of the Lord. We all have that problem, don't we? There's not a person that is perfect in this room. Present company. There's not a person that is in this room that is perfect. Even the Apostle Paul will tell you he wasn't perfect. He even tells us in the book of Philippians, I, I, have yet to op- I have yet to apprehend everything. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward, pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God or the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Keeping that focus on the Lord. Part of the problem with doing this or not doing this is this next verse, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. If we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we are like some who don't understand the necessity to worship with others with one voice and with one heart. I I like to sing unto the Lord by myself, but I like it a whole lot better when I sing with you. I like it a whole lot better that way. I like it a whole lot better when we join our voices together and we, we all stand before the Lord, humbled by His presence. And we can encourage each other. Oh, listen, 
Not many more days and the Lord will be here. (laughs) I've been saying that for about almost 40 years, but that's okay. That's okay. Because I know what, He can come any moment. At any time. So, So we need to encourage each other. Exhort one another. Encourage each other as so much the more as the day approaching, as, as, as the day is approaching. What day is that? The day of Christ, the day of Christ's coming for his church. So let's get back to these that are worshiping before the Lord, because I only have a few more minutes. So I'm going to put it in overdrive, so stay up with me. But these are worshiping God out of the fire and the fury of the tribulation that will produce such a multitude of martyrs. Indeed, Christ's strength has been made perfect in weakness. Christ's strength in our text as to what we're going to see happen, but if we look at it as already happening, then Christ's strength has been made perfect in weakness in the lives of the tribulation saints. And while redeemed man today is prone to weep because of trial and tribulation, and we do, Because sometimes the trials and the tribulations that we face in this life are unbearable sometimes. And painful. Or when others suffer, especially our own loved ones and family members, when they suffer, we suffer with them. And it's not easy. But while we as redeemed people today are prone to weep because of trial and tribulation, on the other side of death, we shall worship God for it. We shall worship God for these trials. These tribulation saints should be a challenge to us. In a day such as our own, when there is so little true worship, this is what I've been implying here in the last few minutes. While there is so little true worship, this awe-inspiring scene of men and of angels worshiping the Lord stands out as one of the most blessed in the entire book of Revelation because of the time frame in which it is taking place. <clears throat> Listen, it's one thing to be worshiping the Lord when everything's going, going well, when everything's cool, right? It's another thing to be worshiping when we're struggling with cancer or we're struggling with other things that are affecting our lives and our bodies or the bodies of our loved ones. And if we can worship in those kind of trials and tribulations, what about our brother that's, that's, you know, that was still being held in, in, in Iran? And we think about his particular trials and his family that is here in the States. Members of, of a Calvary Chapel, act, as, as a matter of fact. Are we taking time to, to, you know, to weep with those who weep? But here is true worship indeed. The redeemed ones come before the Lord with all their possessions and they worship before Him. Now, what are their possessions? White robes and palm branches. See, the problem today is... That our possessions sometimes get in the way of our worship to the Lord. We're so much encouraged, encouraging ourselves, you know, well, you know, I want to go worship the Lord, but I've got to take care of these matters. I've got to take care of this. I've got to take care of that. And, and, I, and, you know, this is the only time that I can do it. 
How many times do we give you an opportunity to come to church? We even have a Saturday night service. If you've got to work on Sunday, come Saturday night. We, we just want you to worship the Lord with us. I, I'm excited. I love coming Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is one of my favorite services. I love to be out here on Saturday. I just love it. And if I put a service every, every night of the week, Monday through Friday, and, and then Saturday and Sunday too, I'd love it. Because I know one thing. The Lord will be here. Where two or more are gathered in, in my name, Jesus said. Where two or more are gathered. Hey, we had two or more here the other day. <laughs> and the Lord was here. It's wonderful. No, I'm not going to have a night, every night thing, okay? But if I did, how many would come? See, you don't raise your hands. Because you'd be lying. And I don't want you to be caught in a lie. But there'll always be at least two. Let's not let our possessions get in the way of our worship to the Lord. Let's not let our possessions get in the way of our worship. Let these tribulation saints be a challenge for our worship life. And these tribulation saints... They're to be properly recognized that we shall see in the next section of our text. And we've got one more section to go, so we've got to finish. So let's do it. Revelation 7, verse 13. It says, And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and, and where do they come from? Now, the question is not being asked as if they don't know. Because notice, verse 14, that John says to him, Sir, you know. The question was posed so that the answer would also come. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now that, that's a reference in essence to the, the last half of the seven year period. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before God or, I'm sorry, they are, therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Please underline that. Dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. If the events of this chapter are pointing to the church, John would have recognized them. John would have known it was the church, but he didn't know who they were. That's the, why the question. So the elder tells him that this innumerable number of people were those who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, verse 14 can actually be translated from the Greek this way. These are those who came out of the tribulation, the great one. In other words, the great tribulation. Just to make that distinction. And so these tribulation saints are saved like you and me. They're saved through Jesus Christ. 
They came to faith in Jesus Christ. Though they came after the rapture of the church, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 15, the elder speaking of those who come out of this great tribulation states that God will dwell among them. Now remember I said underline that. God will dwell among them. That literally, uh, the picture is, because there's a picture in this, the picture is that God is going to put His tent over them. God is going to put His tent over them. Doesn't that sound comforting? Doesn't that sound protecting? I mean, doesn't that sound good? God is going to put His, His tent over them. So, the Greek word for dwell is the word skenaun, or skenu which we find in John 1.14. And it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, there it is, uh, skenu, or skenon, among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came among us. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw Him face to face. That is what what John wrote. We saw Him face to face. We beheld His glory. It is interesting that the Jews connected the word skenu or skenaun to the Hebrew word shekinah or shekinah. How many of you heard the word shekinah as applied to the glory of God? Shekinah glory, or literally shekinah or shekinah glory is not the biblical term. It is a term that is used for the glory of God, but it is not the biblical term. The biblical term is kavod, K-A-V-O-D, transliterated, kavod, glory of God. We we get that from that statement where, where, uh, excuse me, where it was said of someone that, that, um, that the Spirit had left him, Ichabod, the Spirit had departed. Ichabod, kavod, or Ichabod means the, the, the glory departed. But nonetheless, Shekinah is, is kind of a, a, a word that is used, used for the glory of God. And it means of speaking of the glory of God being present. So obviously the words weren't the same, Skenu and, and Shekinah, but they, they, that's how they connected the idea. So I want you to consider something, if you will, Second Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3. Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. Now, this is the same chapter we're, we're talking about when, when, you know, when Solomon is, uh, is before the Lord. Later on, of course, this is when that great prayer comes to him. You know, if my people, or, or that great statement of God, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, and so on and so forth. But here at the beginning of the chapter it says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's the glory of the Lord. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And it says, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. The reason that happened the way it did is because it shows that the glory of God had come to dwell among them. And still at this time, Solomon was right with God. He was right with the Lord. He was called to be the son that would 
that would become the king, that he would build, in fact, the house of the Lord, which David could not do because David was a man of war. But getting back to our text so we can finish up here. These tribulation saints will be given special privilege of being before God's throne and serving Him day and night in His temple. They will be protected by God Himself and never again experience hunger. They will not experience thirst or scorching heat. Now the implication that this, that is the implication that this will be their experience of suffering and death on the earth. Somehow we're going to see that happening uh, to the tribulation saints during that time of, of tribulation. Why does God mention it if that's not going to happen? They won't suffer that heat any longer. They won't hunger and they won't thirst. They're going to be put to death by hunger, by thirst, and by many other different ways. But the Lamb will care for them and lead them to fountains of living waters. And I tell you what, it sounds so, so neat here. It tells us that the Lamb will shepherd these people. Now, usually shepherds shepherd lambs. But the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world will shepherd His people. So we know who the Lamb is. And we know that He will, in fact, lead them to fountains of living waters. And not not just water, but waters, an abundance of waters for eternity. That's what eternity is all about, is God's abundance for everyone who believes in Him, who trusts in Him. And, and their comfort comes in the fact that the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of us have cried a lot of tears in this life. And there's coming a day when the Lord says, okay, that's enough. You don't, have to, you don't have to cry any longer. I'll wipe away all your tears. And I'll bottle them. They're mine. That lets me know that you trust me and my care of you. Could there be any more tender love than this? Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth. I tell you, sometimes we feel like we're being rebuked every day, right? And and the Lord doesn't rebuke every day. But we feel like it every day. But one day, He'll take it all away. He'll take away the rebuke of His people. For the Lord has spoken. And we see it again in Revelation 21, verse 4. It says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Doesn't that encourage you? No more pain? Some of us get up with pain every morning. Well, we deal with it. Best we can. We deal with it. 
But there'll be a day when we won't have to worry about it any longer. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. In closing, let me put things into the proper perspective chronologically. Forgive me, but I wish this microphone thing would... Maybe it's my ear. Maybe I ought to change my ear. Because this, this thing just doesn't stay here. All right. The two witnesses, which we will get into in chapter 11. We're not there yet, but most of you are familiar that there are two witnesses. The two witnesses, which we will get into in chapter 11, minister roughly through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. If you remember not too many weeks ago, I mentioned that we ought not to look at this whole thing in the chronological order. There is some order, and certainly we, there is a chronological order. But, you know, it's not strictly chronological, so understand that. There's coming back and forth to things. So, the two witnesses minister roughly through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. It is out of their ministry, as we'll see later, that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses come forth... And in the midst of the tribulation period, we see God seal these witnesses, 12,000 taken from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, before the Antichrist unleashes his wrath and all hell breaks loose. During the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, many will come to know Jesus and will be martyred for their faith, both Jew and Gentile. And that should remind us of what we saw as the fifth seal was opened in Revelation chapter 6. So I just want to bring this back to your attention as we close. So it kind of brings a wrap on everything that we've seen so far in chapter 7. So let's look at Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11. That's just going back a page. Okay. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So you see how we can look at this really chronologically right now? The seal was open at a certain time and the judgments had come, but there were the tribulation saints already. And it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The cry for God's vengeance upon their judges. And then... A white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. One thing that we also have to remember is that there have been martyred saints from the time of, of the inception of the church. Stephen being the first. In Acts chapter 7. And many after that. So we're talking about those who are waiting. You know, of course the martyr saints from before were resurrected at the rapture of the church. But it's just a reminder to us that the Lord says there's a number. And I know every number. And I know every saint. There won't be some that don't make it and others that do that shouldn't. Everybody who comes, comes because I know them already. So you can rest assured about that. But this is just to show that while we don't look at everything, everything chronologically, there is a chronology and we 
you know, we'll let the Spirit lead us to understand that part. But there's a little back and forth here so that you can see what is being accomplished. So there are tribulation saints that are waiting for their, for their justice to be done through the vengeance of the Lord and the judgment of God. And then there is the fullness. There is a number. And when that final number is completed, they stand before the Lord. They worship Him and they stimulate the elders and the church and the angels to worship the Lord. So, the end of chapter 7. And next time, the seventh seal is going to be open, which leads now to the next set of judgments, which are the trumpet judgments. And uh, we continue on. So, let's pray.